Well, again, thank you for being here today, especially if this is your first time walking through our doors. It really does mean a lot that you would choose to spend part of your week here with us. We know that you could be uh, a lot of different places here this morning, but for whatever reason, you chose to show up here, and we certainly do not take that for granted. I want to start things out this morning by telling all of you a story. It's actually a, a love story. I think it's like one of the greatest love stories that unfortunately very, very few people know about. So you guys are like in for a real treat right now. Let, let, let's go back to the summer of, of 2005. Uh, there's a very young, extremely handsome Shea Prisk walks onto the campus of Indiana Wesleyan University in beautiful Marion, Indiana, where it's actually not beautiful at all. I often look back and think I could have went anywhere for four years, and I chose rural Indiana, but nonetheless, the story gets better from here, and I walk into freshman orientation, it's the month of August, and and I don't know a single person in this incoming freshman class, like I am basically starting all of that relational equity from scratch, there's not one person from my high school that's also going to Indiana Wesleyan, and so it's kind of an intimidating thing to step into freshman orientation, get dropped off by my dad, walk in this auditorium, and there's just thousands of other incoming freshmen, and here I am. I'm like, okay, I'm dead set that I'm going to at least meet one person that day that I can like hang out with for the day so I don't look like a complete loser, a complete loner. And so I walk into the building and and my mentality was, okay, I'm either going to find a a guy that looks like halfway normal and and spark up a conversation with him, or uh, I'll be honest, I was kind of being superficial. I was like, I'm going to find a pretty girl and, and go have a conversation with some some random girl. And so I walk into the building. It looks like everybody else already has friends. But off to the left, I notice that there are two pretty girls standing about 10 feet apart from each other. They're both leaning up against the wall, both playing on their phones, which as I look back now is like pretty comical because they had flip phones. Like what were they doing? Like T9 word action? That's probably what was going on. So they're sitting there pretending that they're busy. And over about 30 seconds, I had this choice to make. Do I talk to the girl on the left that like was really dressed up and like cute looking. Like she looked like she was fr- fresh out of like a Pac Sun catalog. She was wearing a Roxy shirt that day. I remember I came to just refer to her as Roxy. She's wearing a skirt, her hair's done really nice. And then there's the girl to the right, and she's dressed kind of the opposite of that. She's wearing sweatpants and a t shirt. And, and her hair was still done nice and stuff. I mean, they're both cute. And so I'm like, again, for 30 seconds having this internal debate. I'm trying to work up the courage, like, which girl am I going to go and, and talk to? And, and I ultimately ended up veering right in talking to the girl in, in sweats. And if you're, you're curious as to why I made that decision, this is how freshmen in, in college men think. I was thinking, okay, if this is the girl that I end up marrying, that's a little bit of a jump to a conclusion, um, she's probably lower maintenance because she wore sweats to freshmen. I mean, serious, this was honestly my logic. And so I went and I sparked up this conversation with a young Andrea Fichter. Little did she know the first person I would meet at freshman orientation would be later be the girl about five years later that I would end up marrying. And, and we spent the rest of our day there together, like laughing and having a really good time. I got her phone number. She, she would later tell her, her mom on the way home from freshman orientation, she said, mom, and with tears in her eyes, she said, this is going to sound crazy, but I think I'm going to marry that guy. Isn't that crazy? I made that part up. Okay, it would have been a better story if that was true, but I think she told her mom that she met some dude that was like halfway decent. So we ended up dating about halfway through our our sophomore year. Oh yeah, I completely understand if you want to find a new church now. That would make a lot of sense. There she is gripping tightly to that T9 word phone. Motorola action there. And so, uh, again, about a year after graduation, then we, uh, then we end up finally getting hitched. And now we have these two little maniacs as evidence that we really do like each other. The two cutest kids on the face of the earth, in case you were wondering. There's my three-year-old daughter named Logan and my two-year-old son named Malachi. And you know what I've thought about 
from time to time, and I, I don't just tell you this because it sounds good for this sermon. I, I really have thought about this many, many times throughout like the second half of my life. W- what if I wouldn't have struck up a conversation with Andrea that day? What, what if I would have instead struck up and, and went and had a conversation with, with Roxy? Where, where would I be at today? Where, where would this world be at without Shay and Andrea? More importantly, where would this world be without these two awesome, cute little kids? My life, the course of my life was, was completely altered by one decision. Seriously, the, the decision to talk to the girl in sweatpants as opposed to the girl out of the Sun catalog. We, we started this new series last week called Who's Your One? And, and man, if, if you were not here last week, I hate to tell you this, but you really, really missed out. All, all week I, I've been thinking about as I sat right there in the front row and, and we watched hundreds of people come forward uh, and tack names on that cross as kind of this public declaration of, hey, I'm gonna commit to praying for just that one person. Maybe it was a coworker, a friend, a family member, a neighbor. I'm gonna keep praying for this one person every single day until that person comes to know and experience what it means to have an actual relationship with Jesus. If you weren't here last week, we're gonna give you an opportunity uh, to do that at the end of this service as, as well. We'll get there, but hopefully y'all have been taking that seriously. Hopefully you all have been praying every single day for your one. If you weren't here last week, please be sure to go to grumlaw.com slash messages and catch yourself up there. Or you can find us under Grumlaw Church wherever you grab your podcasts. You've probably noticed that this is a bit of a trend for me. I basically encourage people every single week to go to grumlaw.com slash messages and catch yourself up. But again, uh, if you weren't here last week, I would really, really, really encourage you to do that. Last week was a very, very significant Sunday in the history of our church. It was very much kind of one of those stake-in-the-ground moments. So I'm begging you, again, weren't here, go back, listen to that message. The content that we're going to be discussing here over the three weeks of of this series, this this Who's Your One strategy, this Who's Your One language will forever be a part of this church's DNA. And, And we are anticipating that it will result in Grumlaw having the greatest possible impact in this community for Jesus. We're, we're, we're trusting it's going to result in friends, in, in family, in neighbors, in, co- in co-workers encountering Jesus and experiencing the joy of having an actual relationship with Jesus. But, it, but as we move on here to part two this morning, let's be honest with ourselves. We as people, and, and this is a human being thing, this isn't a Christian thing, uh, we tend to overlook the significance of one. It's why it's so easy for you to justify eating just one more cookie. It's why it took almost no convincing at all to to get you to drink just one more cocktail. It, It didn't feel like that big of a deal at the time to go on just one more date, to buy one more of those, to stay at work for just one more hour, that the choice to have just one conversation with just one pretty girl. Isn't it true that we underestimate, we underestimate the value of one? But, but what do you know it? As we look back at the course of our lives, we can quickly figure out that, that it was a series of ones that got you to where you are at today. And, and Jesus, as in like the son of God, Jesus, he understood this really, really well, which is probably why he talked about the value of one so frequently during his relatively short time here on earth. He, he was quick to remind us that, that we shouldn't overlook those singular choices. We, we shouldn't be so quick to overlook those singular decisions. Now, now the reality is, is I have no idea where everybody today finds themselves on this whole faith journey. So some of you, you've been at this church thing for your entire life. 
Uh, others of you, you're stepping back into church after walking away for a pretty significant chunk of time. Uh, others of you, you're just at the early stages. You're just beginning to explore. Some of you, you've basically been forced or bribed into showing up here today. But, but you owe it to yourself to know this. That the reason that Jesus was constantly stressing the value of one is because whether you believe this or not, he has your best interest in mind. Je Jesus is in fact looking out for you. He, he, he's reminding us of something that we all actually deep down know to be true. That these sing singular, seemingly insignificant, one-time decisions, they add up. That they have this sort of compounding interest effect in our lives. Ch chances are, for example, it wasn't leasing that one vehicle that buried you financially. It, it was the lease and then it was buying the home that was slightly outside of your means, and then it was buying more of those, and then it was a little credit card debt, and then it was a lot of credit card debt, and then it was the second lease, and now you feel like you're backed into this financial corner and there's no way out. And Jesus, again, because he has your best interest in mind, is going bingo. That, that, that's precisely why he would constantly speak to the value of one. He, he's for you. He's trying to keep us from ruining ourselves with our one-time decisions that seem to consistently add up over time. And at the same time, he's trying to push us towards those singular decisions that will result in our lives having the greatest possible impact during our time here on earth. And don't miss this. In, in turn, allow you to experience purpose, fulfillment, contentment, something that every single one of us are after, Experience a purpose and fulfillment and contentment like you never thought possible. Let me give you an example. One of the things that Jesus would constantly advocate for during his time on earth was this idea of sexual purity. And our society looks at these types of messages from Jesus and we think it's old-fashioned, we think it's unrealistic, we think that we ought to do these things just because the Bible says so, because God's some sort of control freak, but, but it's so much better than that. See, see the, the reason that Jesus is telling you, hey, may, maybe you shouldn't make these sexual choices, but before you are married is because someday, every single person in this room, you either want to be married or you are married. And when you do finally meet that person that you want to spend the rest of your life with, at that point, Christian or not, universally, 100% of the time, people in that moment, they regret those sexual decisions they made prior to that point. Because now you're stuck in this whole awkward dance of you're looking at this person, Mr. Right, Mrs. Right, and you're going, okay, how much she tells me is going to determine how much I tell her, and you're going back and forth. Again, you have caused damage to your marriage. And Jesus is going, I want you to have the best relationship. I want you to have the best marriage possible. And you don't realize it right now, but you're building up regrets. You're causing damage to that future relationship. And when you know it, that that's Jesus' attitude. That's his posture for your entire life in literally every area. He's not just thinking about in the here and the now. He's looking at the big picture. He's looking towards your future. And digging back into what we began to uncover last week, Jesus makes sure it's really, really clear that there's no greater single decision that you can make with your life. In, in particular, if you're sitting here today and you call yourself a Jesus follower, that will bring you more joy, that will bring more purpose, that will bring more fulfillment than to begin to reproduce what God has done in you in others. 
that, that, that it might not seem like this massive investment for you to reach after that one person who is far from God at a time, but Jesus knew that if every person that's sitting here who calls themselves a Christian took that command seriously, it, it would have, needless to say, a very, very dramatic effect. I, I know that myself, Shea Prisk, in, in and of myself, I, I am not going to have a very dramatic impact on the community of Grand Blanc alone. And I think it's why God has, has called me to, to lead a church, to hopefully equip more people, to, to equip more people to go after their friends, again, their family, the people in this community. And as we began to uncover last week, this is the distinguishing mark of a person who just calls themselves a Christian and an actual disciple. See, disciples multiply themselves. They're constantly chasing after one person, one person that has no idea that there is a God out there that loves them so much that he would send his one and his only son to die for them. Jesus illustrated this really well when when he told us this story. We're going to find this story in in the book of Luke. Uh, If you're sitting here today and you've ever been skeptical of Christianity, uh, Luke would be a really, really great book for you to read because Luke was actually a physician and he was skeptical of all these things that he was hearing about Jesus. And so he dedicated the latter part of his life to thoroughly investigating the events surrounding the life of Jesus. And then he recorded all those findings for us in, in this document that we would refer to as Luke. And, and here in, in the 15th chapter, he records some of Jesus's words. Again, Jesus talking. He says, if a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them gets lost, what, what will he do? Well, won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? Uh, now, now, we're not much of a sheep culture. I, I doubt that any of you are making a living by uh, being a shepherd, but I think you can probably get your head around the point that, that Jesus is trying to make here. Uh, that this past su- summer, th- there was one day in particular where I, I don't even remember what my wife was doing, but she's like, hey, you have the kids for, for the day by yourself, and I don't know if any dads can relate to this, but like when I have the kids all day by myself, I don't like sitting in the house because if I'm being honest, they just drive me nuts. So I just try to get them out of the house and like create new experiences. And so I said, okay, kids, we're going to go to like these three parks that we've never been to before. And we ended up at this park up in Flushing. uh, And and there was a lot of stuff like going on there. And there was a lot of fun things the kids wanted to play with. But of course, my two kids didn't want to do the same thing. My, My daughter, Logan, she wanted to play on the playground. And my son Malachi, there was a basketball. When that kid sees a ball, like he's all boy, he just wants to play with the ball. So he wanted to play basketball, and Logan wanted to play on the playground. They're like 40 yards away from each other. And and so for like the first half an hour, I'm just like running back and forth like every two minutes. Like, okay, Logan's still alive, Malachi's still alive. Logan's still alive, Malachi's still alive. And eventually, like I got to this point where I kept checking on Logan, and she was kind of irritated. Like she's already at that age where she's like, dad, like leave me alone. Like you don't need to check in on me. And there weren't like that many other people there. There were two other moms there and like four other kids. And I was like, okay, I'll stop checking in on Logan so quite as frequently. I'll just kind of hang out with Malachi. Me and Malachi would play basketball. We played basketball for about 20 minutes. And I kept kind of glancing over. And after about a half an hour, it kind of dawned on me that it had been a minute since I saw my little daughter's head bobbing around. And I was like, that's kind of weird. Now you would think in that moment, I would immediately go look for her. No, I was like, we'll give it another 10. And so I, I kept playing basketball with Malachi. And then I looked over and I was again, like, I'm kind of glancing back. I'm like, I haven't seen my kid in a while. And so I scoop up Malachi. I was like, hey, it's playground time. And I start walking around this big playground and I can't find Logan. And, and these two other moms that, that are there, they're, they're starting to sense that I must be some sort of loser dad. And, and they're like, hey, like, are you having trouble finding your kid? I'm like, I just misplaced her. We're just trying to figure it out here. 
And so they're like, what's her name? I'm describing her to, the, to these parents. I'm describing her to, to these other kids. I'm like sending five-year-olds out to go hunt for my daughter. And I'm like, okay, yeah, here's what she looks like. Here's what she was wearing. And it's like goes on for literally 10 minutes. I cannot find my daughter. And I, by this point, I am in like a full-blown panic. Like I think somebody has taken her. It bats up to these backyards. I'm looking over these fences. I'm like, where is Logan? At no point in that search did I think to myself, you know, Maybe I'll give this a rest. This is just getting a little bit annoying. I'll go home with 50% of my kids. My wife ought to be okay with that. Like, honey, at least I didn't lose both of them. Like, I got one. The other one, TBD. We'll, we'll see if we can find her maybe later on. I would have kept searching until I found Logan. He continues, he says, and when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. Just in case you're curious, I did find her, by the way. Um, uh, and she was in like this, this sandbox that I didn't know existed. In fact, I'm not even sure it was supposed to be a part of the playground, but it was like underneath all these other areas. And this little five-year-old girl told me, she's like, ah, there's this like little hidden area that kids go to sometimes. And of course, I look down in there and there's my daughter playing in the sand with this big grin on her face because she thinks she has been playing this awesome game of hide and seek with dad. And, and I reached down and I pulled my little girl out and I wrapped her up so tight. I'm telling you guys, I wept. I literally bawled my eyes out and I looked at her and I grabbed her little face. I said, Logan, when daddy calls for you, you have to respond. I thought somebody took you, sweetie. And then she starts crying. Probably she's just like looking at dad. Like, why is he stopping? Like, so hysterically. So then I scooped both of my kids up. We put them in the car and we invited our friends and our and our family over, and we had this big party that we found Logan. No, we didn't do that part. That would have been weird. In fact, I, uh, I tried to keep that a secret, actually, up until this point. It's like, hey, I just keep losing my kids. It's really, really awesome. But here's, here's the point that, that Jesus is making. It's pretty amazing when you find something that you thought was lost. And you don't have to lose a kid or a pet for this to ring true. Isn't it pretty incredible? When you lose your phone for like a six-hour period and you find it, you're like, ah! Like you are so excited that your phone is back. Your, your car keys, you can't find them anywhere. You and your husband, you're like looking all over the house. Wouldn't you know it? They were just in your coat pocket. Your favorite jacket that you left at the restaurant and you go back and they actually have it. Your wedding ring. Shoot, I get pretty excited when I find a lost sock. Maybe I'm the only person that this happens to, but it's like I do laundry about twice a year. Uh, I do laundry more than that, but about twice a year this, this happens. And, and like I get done with laundry and there's just like, where's the other sock? And then you're kind of doing the whole thing of like, do I throw it away? Do, do I hold on to it in case I find the other one? Like two months later, you do laundry again and it's back. It's like, where did you come from? You rush to the sock drawer. You match those babies back up. You're like, I'm so glad I didn't throw that thing away. There's harmony again in the sock drawer. When you find that lost thing, it's an incredible feeling. J Jesus wraps this, this up with this statement. I'm telling you guys, pay attention to what Jesus says here. It's a staggering, almost shocking statement. He says in the same way, listen to this. There is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous, who have that right standing, and have not strayed away. Now, if you grew up going to church, we hear a statement like this and we think, oh man, that's just great. No, 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 it's better than great. Can we just pause for a minute and get our minds around what Jesus just said here? Can you allow the implications 
of this statement by Jesus to sink in. That this is not hyperbole. Jesus wasn't in the business of exaggerating. He's not being dramatic to make a point. He means exactly what he is saying here. It brings Jesus, it brings your heavenly father more joy when one person who does not know him comes to know him. When one person who does not know him puts their faith in him than over 99 other people who already know him and choose not to wander away. Your heavenly father would be more excited about your spiritually lost friend, your spiritually lost neighbor, coworker, spouse, showing up here on a Sunday morning. He'd be more pumped about that than if every Christian in Genesee County happened to show up to Grumlaw on a given morning. Nothing, nothing brings your creator more joy than the one turning to him. Y'all, this is exactly why we started this church. We, we haven't been shy about this, in fact. Like, we, we have no desire to see this church grow on the heels of like transfer growth, where, where, where people that were just kind of already calling themselves Christians, we kind of got ticked off at their old pastor, they didn't like something that happened at their old church, and now they're, now they're showing up here. I mean, we know that that's gonna be a natural byproduct, but we don't celebrate that. What we get excited about is people who had previously had no relationship with Jesus come to know and experience what it means to have a true relationship with their creator. It's why we're making such a big deal of this who's your one strategy because nothing, nothing brings your heavenly father more joy than spiritually lost people coming to know him. This is ultimately why Jesus was constantly stressing the value of one during his time on earth. And by the way, if you're sitting here today and this is like all news to you, Again, you're new to this Christianity thing. You need to know that it's as simple as faith. It's as simple as trust, belief, synonymous terms. They all mean the same thing. It's almost impossible to comprehend, and I get this, that the most high God would make the standard so simple. That the way that you would be declared righteous, which is just a fancy way of saying the way that you get a right standing with God, it's not based on what you do. It's not based on who you married. It's not based on what your past looked like. It's, it's so much simpler than that. It's, it's just trust. It's belief. Do you believe that you are in need of saving? Do you believe that you are a, and it takes some courage to admit this, but that you are a sinner, but that God sent his one and his only son to die on a cross for you? But three days later, he, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. And Jesus would tell us over and over again, I know it's hard to comprehend, but that, it's that simple. And just like that, when you put your faith in him, you get that right standing back. And so if we understand this, and I just kind of told you, so you can't really claim ignorance anymore, knowing that, that this brings God more joy than anything else, and knowing that Jesus tells us that this will ultimately lead to the best life available, what are we waiting for? If you're sitting here again and you call yourself a Jesus follower, I, I want to challenge you to call out your excuses. Be, be honest with yourself. Where do you tend to make excuses? Well, what are those excuses? Well, one that I hear over and over again is I'm not mature enough. I don't know enough. I haven't been a Christian long enough. I don't understand this stuff well uh, enough. And you feel like you need like more of something until you can get to that point and begin to share the love of Jesus with other people. 
y'all, Jesus made it crystal clear that those feelings of insecurity, those feelings of inadequacy, those are actually a prerequisite. He does not need your ability. All that he requires is your availability. For, for some of us, it's, it's apathy. It's this feeling of somebody else will do it. Somebody else will have the courage to have that conversation. Somebody else will invite. I'll get to it eventually. But maybe we ought to begin treating this with the urgency that it deserves. We, we don't like talking about these things too much, but so many people around us, and, and what's worse, people you care about, People that you love deeply, unless something changes, they are going to spend eternity separated from their creator. Let's stop assuming that somebody else is going to come along. Maybe you are exactly the instrument that God wants to use to change that person's eternity. I've used this one before. I'm too busy. It's like I just have like too, too much going on in my life, and I don't doubt that you're busy. I know that I can tend to get pretty busy, but I think it's a matter of like, how are we prioritizing the things in our life? Or are we seriously have things going on in our life that would be more important than this? Maybe it's a desire to be tolerant. Again, you're just so worried about offending someone. You're worried that might infringe on the beliefs that they grew up with. But again, here we are putting the risk of offending over the value of a person's eternity. And I think maybe the most prevalent example would be a fear of rejection. We're just so worried, like, what somebody's going to say back to us. We're, we're so worried about how they're going to respond, that they're not going to respond well to what we're presenting to them. You know that research, and this was kind of fascinating, actually, when I, I researched this this week. Research shows that only one in four unchurched persons will be resistant to faith conversations. Which, if you're doing the math, that means that 75% of people are open to it. And let's be honest, we dream the rejection up in our minds to be so much worse than it ever actually is. I've had those rejecting conversations. You know how it usually goes? Hey, I just don't really want to talk about it anymore. Can, can we just like kind of move on? It's never like the punch to the face and like, don't ever talk to me. We can never be friends. In fact, go find a new place to work. Like it, it never goes that way. And, and what's sort of strange is our faith is almost the only area of our lives that we allow that fear of rejection to completely drive us in a corner and never have those conversations. Let me give you an example. Uh, when I see a good movie, maybe this is just a me thing, I tell other people about that good movie that I saw. I recommend it to friends. I recommend it to family. In fact, this happened recently to really good friends of mine, David and, and Mallory Reed. They're, they're going to be up on the stage. They're dedicating their kid in the second service. And, and I told them, I said, hey, there's this movie on Netflix. you got to watch it. I'm telling you, it's so good. About a month later, David actually watches it, and he's like, that movie was horrible. What is wrong with you? Like, why did you think that was good? Did, did that rejection cause me to never recommend another movie? No. In fact, what's worse, I've continued to recommend the movie that he thought was terrible. So, so let's stop allowing this, this fear that somebody is going to be opposed to what we have to say to drive our behaviors. Call out those excuses. And as we introduced last week, ask yourself, who's your one? For, for all you followers of Jesus, remember, you were one at some point. What, what if we took this seriously to really pursue the one? Who, who's that one person in your life that you will commit to pray for every single day for those opportunities to have conversations, those, those opportunities to invite, those opportunities to bring to Jesus? I, I referenced this cross earlier. If you weren't here last week, at the end of the service, uh, there were those bookmarks that were on your seat. Why don't you guys pull those out real quick? Even if you filled one out last week, we're not going to ask you to do it again, but that way the person that wasn't here last week doesn't feel isolated. Um, 
There's a top section and there's a bottom section. And what we would invite you to do is write that one, write, write that one person that almost immediately comes to mind that you want to see come to know Jesus. Write that name on the top and then on the bottom as well. When the service concludes, uh, there's tacks up here and you have the opportunity to come and, and, and tack that person's name on the small portion up to this cross. It's this way of, of publicly declaring to this church in front of this faith community that, hey, I'm going to take this seriously. I'm gonna truly pray for this one person every single day because I'm believing that a consistent, specific prayer is a powerful prayer. And I'm gonna keep praying every single day, whether it takes a month or whether it takes 15 years for this person until they come to know and experience what it means to have an actual relationship with Jesus. And then in that bottom half, we, we, we would love for you to take that and put it somewhere that you're gonna see it every single day. I stuck mine in my planner. Yes, I still use a paper planner. Uh, it's impossible to miss. All week, I've been praying just for my one. I've been praying for Ed every single day. And again, hopefully you all have been doing that as well. Who's your one? Y'all, the importance of this cannot be overstated. People's eternities are at stake. We, we, we must stop assuming that help is on the way. We, we, we have to stop assuming that somebody else is going to have that conversation. We, we, we must start running under the assumption that we are the instrument that God has chosen to change their eternity, that there is no plan B. You might just be it. I think each year I focus on like, okay, God, what do you want from me from this year? How will I grow? How do you want to stretch me in new ways? Is there a verse or a word or a prayer? And I kept going back to 2 Corinthians 4. So I was like, okay, I'm going to journal through this verse. And three points came and they each had a vision or the word eyes or whatever. And I just, I didn't think anything of it. And I asked God, okay, Lord, like, let this be true of me. Guide this year by focusing on my gaze on you. That was January 9th. I went about my day. The kids started school. We were um, doing well. And uh, my husband mentioned like, hey, you've been kind of like tripping over things lately. And maybe you should get your eyes checked. And we both kind of laughed because I've never had glasses in my life. And I was like, okay, I guess this is just aging. And so um, I made an eye appointment and got in January 16th. And so, you know, I started my appointment. She did the eye chart, 2020. Um, she started to do a peripheral test and she said, what number am I holding up? And I said, I don't even see your arm. As the appointment progressed, she got more and more concerned. Um, I finally was like, so what does all this mean? And she said, you know, you may either have a brain tumor or you are going blind. She carried on that, you know, blindness is the trajectory of this disorder called retinitis pigmentosa, where your photoreceptors die in the back of your eye until you um, lose your peripherals. Basically, it just closes into a tunnel until your tunnel closes. Um, so she said, you know, judging by what you have, you've got about 58% is already lost. I'm 35 years old. She's saying I could, you know, it'll progress relatively quickly. And each appointment has basically been worse news. And, um, you know, they thought maybe originally I would lose my sight in my 60s or 70s. And, and genetic testing and all these things have kind of fast-forwarded my timeline to my 40s, if not by the time I turned 40. And so the days that followed that appointment were really overwhelming and heavy, but at the same time, like, I felt so close with the Lord and so sure of my purpose in this. 
my husband's one and my one that we've been praying for have both been impacted by my diagnosis. She came to my doorstep and said, I read your blog and I don't understand how you can reconcile that there is a good God with what you're going through, but I want to I wanna try to understand. So it's been so cool, the fact that it's, we're only six months in at this point to the diagnosis and seeing the way God's drawing not only ourselves to Him, but people that we've been praying for for years to, to see Him in a new way. There have been days where I'm like, this stinks. You know, I want to see my grandkids. I want to see my kids walk across the stage or walk down the aisle. But at the same time, like, God is a good God who does not withhold things from His children. He's giving me something in the place of what's being taken that's far better than sight. I don't know about you, but when I watched that video the first time, I, I just thought for sure it was going to end with this woman saying, like, hey, but don't worry, God performed this miracle, and, and now I can see, and then God was going to use that miracle of, like, against all the odds to, to draw the, the one closer to her. It wasn't exactly the ending that I was expecting. Uh, I want to wrap up with, with this today. We're going to jump into a passage that we find in the book of Matthew. Uh, it's another one of those accounts that we call the good news. It's one of these four books that records for us Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And here we have some more words right from the mouth of Jesus recorded for us. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and, and then in his joy he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. it, it you can be guaranteed that, that when these men started offloading everything to buy this field, to buy this pearl, that people are looking at them like they are maniacs. Like, what is wrong with you? Like, why would you? Like, it's a field. It's just one pearl. And, and you can be guaranteed that when you begin to truly give God control of everything, when you treat every single day as an opportunity to share the love of Jesus with the people around you, your life's going to start to look different. And, and, and the people around you, in particular, the people that are closest to you, are going to look at you like you have lost it. They're going to assume that you've taken this whole Jesus thing just too far. But you won't care because you have found the one thing worth losing everything for. I, I can understand if you're sitting here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, why that video like we just saw there with, with Kylie Lee looks absolutely ludicrous. How, how could that woman possibly be seeing anything positive as she is literally losing her vision? As she's going more and more blind by the day. But it's because she's already discovered this one thing worth losing everything for and she knows that that relationship with Jesus, no matter what happens, cannot be taken away from her. And even further, she understands that she's not just called to be a Christian, that she is called to be a disciple. So she's actually celebrating the fact. I mean, do you hear the words that she was using to describe her, her sickness? She, she's celebrating the fact that she's losing her vision because God is using her sickness to bring those who are spiritually lost closer to him. When you discover the joy of, of being in a relationship, of knowing Jesus, it's not an option to keep it to yourself. You, you, you desperately want other people 
to, to experience it because you understand how infinitely better life can be. You, you have found the one thing worth losing everything for and you will go to absurd lengths to get others in on the action. It's not just for you. It's for everyone. You've discovered how much better life can be, the contentment, the joy, the purpose that Jesus can provide, and you desperately want that for other people. I have a friend um, that, man, when I, when I first met him, uh, he's one of those guys that you can't go anywhere in public with him without him sharing his faith with, with somebody, and he does it so casually. And I gotta be honest, when I first met this guy, like I, I wasn't very spiritually mature, I guess I would say. I didn't really have this great relationship with Jesus, and it honestly annoyed me sometimes. I would sit there and be like, would you just like give it a rest, dude? Like We don't have to tell every person that we come across about Jesus. Like We can talk to him about sports or like other things, like other interests. But, but, but now as I, I've gotten older and now as I, I understand the, the joy of actually having a relationship with Jesus, I, I, I get it. He just so desperately wants other people to experience that. These people that are just going through the motions of life and they have no idea that there's something out there that is so much better. We, we, we took an Uber together, me and this guy. I'm referencing uh, from uh, the hotel to, to the airport that we were headed to. And, and just like clockwork, five minutes into the, the ride, it was about a 45-minute trip. Uh, here we are, these, these two weirdo pastors sitting in the back seat, just sharing the love of Jesus with this guy. And, and by the end of it, the guy looked and he's like, hey, thanks for just having a conversation with me. And, and here's the, the deal. I, I have no idea how that story ends. I'll, I'll never see that guy again. I'll never see where Kenny ends up. I, I don't know if he'll walk into a church here this morning, but, but that's not up for us to decide. We, we are called to just be those instruments. We're, we're called to just make ourselves available. No, no person's too far gone, too hopeless, too old, too young. So, so who is your one? It, it is not insignificant. Eternities are at stake. The, the importance of one cannot be overstated.